This is Reformers, the gritty details behind the world's greatest bootstrap success stories. In today's episode, which is our season finale for 2021, I'm excited to welcome Jonathan Strauss, the founder and CEO of Create Music Group. Create is a media and technology company that helps creators and artists better analyze, optimize, and discover audiences for their content. Jonathan started the business in 2015 after a series of ups and downs as an entrepreneur and grew it from a singular product into the second fastest growing company in the country. Today, Jonathan will share his insights and lessons learned from building the business while bootstrapping. Please welcome Jonathan Strauss. Would love to just hear more about your background before starting CMG. This can turn into a 30 minute conversation and I, I, I make the mistake of doing that. So I'll, I'll try to give the condensed version of it. When I was uh, at UCLA, um, my, my parents were generous enough to give me a little bit of money. They give me a head start there. So I had 60 or $70,000 um, that they had put in my bank account. Um, that was also meant to be used for like boarding and tuition. And the first year I was in college, I was studying statistics and I became really interested with um, trading. Um, especially with like algorithmic trading where you just create different formulas to figure out when you want to, um, sell based on like volatility and different things you could build out. And this was the year of all the banks, I guess you could call it the banking crisis, but there had never been a larger, a more volatile point in time for as long of a time as this year for the banking stocks. And I remember I got an E-Trade account. I don't know what what was I? Uh, let's say nineteen years old. I'm not I'm not even sure. Um, and I took that sixty seventy grand, and with E Trade they instantly approved me for margin. So that sixty or seventy grand became two hundred forty grand, and I started just playing the volatility every single day, and I turned that two hundred forty grand into over a million dollars in a really really short amount of time. And I thought I was this hot shot trader. Um, and all I would do is play the volatility, but I created one rule of at the end of the day, the position had to sell no matter what, because the one thing I couldn't control was the after hours trading. And at some point I had taken this 70 grand into let's call it $1.2 million. Um, and I at least wasn't playing on volatility or sorry, I wasn't playing on margin anymore. Thank gosh, but I broke my rule on a Friday and the 1.2 had gone to like 700. So still a thousand percent return over a thousand percent return from where I started. And I'm like, no, I can't lose this much money. I held it over the weekend. I remember I was actually uh, skiing with my girlfriend and going into Monday morning, all the money was in uh, Washington Mutual and Washington Mutual announced bankruptcy that morning. So a hundred percent of that money went away. And I, I remember to this day that I wasn't actually that sad about it. Cause I think when you don't actually earn the money, when you don't actually ever spend the money, the money's kind of imaginary. So like, I just, I'm like, what am I going to do? I didn't want to go back to my parents at UCLA. Um, I had a single dorm. So like in Hendrick Hall, they basically have these, single dorms where there's five dorms on each side of a bathroom uh, with a shared living room. 
And right away, I'm like, all right, well, this is 1600 bucks a month. I want to move out of this. I move into the living room and I convince the RAs to allow me to move into this living room. I get UCLA to make it so I'm no longer paying the, the monthly rent there. And I had um, a car worth, I don't know, eight or $9,000. I sell the, the car and I'm like, well, how the heck am I going to survive? I still have, you know, another tuition payment coming up. Um, I do think I convinced UCLA to defer some payments. They were, they were really generous with me um, about the situation, but I needed, I knew I needed a way to survive. And I definitely knew I didn't want to get a, a job or work for the school. So my entire life, I was always really interested in fixing up computers um, in both middle school and high school. I was one of those guys that would like overclock a computer and be on the forums to see this week. Am I the, you know, did I overclock the, this computer to the fastest in the nation at that moment? And I would play with like liquid nitrogen and different, different chemicals that would see how far I could push it. Um, and when I was at UCLA, it was the same year that the red camera was becoming prolific in the film world. I don't know. Have you heard of the red camera before? I have not. So the red camera was like the first camera that was affordable to the prosumer that could shoot like a major motion pictures classic film camera could. It was essentially like now you have all these red cameras, Alexa cameras, there's lots of variants of it. And for like 20, 30 grand, it shot pretty similar to a million dollar camera. And instead of having to use tape, you could just render it in your Apple computer. But the problem was, is that rendering it so that you could actually edit it would take at least 24 hours for a small amount of footage. And Apple just didn't move quick enough. So the computers they were releasing, I think it was right when Apple had released their first Intel-based um, Mac Pro. So let, let's call it 2008, 2009. Um, I said, all right, well, let's take apart this Apple computer. Let's figure out, is there a way to make it so we can edit in real time? And I can't say I came up with this concept, but there was actually this forum by a guy named Netkiss out of Russia that discussed ways to modify PC graphics cards that were always a year or two ahead of what the Apple computers graphics cards were at that time and allow you to essentially modify them you would solder them by taking different parts and putting it inside of the graphics card. And then you would put them in the Mac Pro. And I kept playing with different graphics cards, different processors, to the point where I eventually made a computer that could render that footage in, let's say, a few hours compared to a full day. And I had no idea if this would be something, something that people wanted, but I just put an ad up on Craigslist. I'm like, hey, for anyone that has a red camera, here's a Mac Pro. Edit your footage in three hours versus 24. And I marked the computer up by $2,000 more than the parts inside of it. And literally within an hour, someone emailed me saying, hey, if this is true, I want to test it and buy it. And came over, they tested it, it worked. They bought it. I made my first two grand. I'm like, okay, cool. Like people want this. And I would say in like three months, the little computer business, which was out of the shared living room in the UCLA dorms was making, let's call it $100,000 profit a month. Not crazy money, but for me at that time, pretty massive money. Um, and I just keep, I kept reinvesting inside of that, where by the end of graduating college, 
I probably ended up with, let's say two and a half million dollars in, uh, in, in profits from this business. And I became like the go-to guy for, it was definitely a niche, right? There isn't millions of people that need these computers, at least at that point in time, there wasn't. Maybe now there's a lot more people that do want to edit or, or do want to make um, film with that quality. But in LA, whether it was Bad Robot, all these movies during those years, Transformers, they were all using my computers. So every movie that you might've seen between 2009, 2011, like there was definitely a chance that they were edit editing on my makeshift Mac Pros and not editing on the ones that Apple sold. Um, and eventually, I want to say in 2013, Apple came out with their trash can Mac Pro. I call it trash can because it's a, a black cylinder. And that computer, uh, plus a company called, I think it was called Black Magic allowed you to edit in near real time. So it kind of disrupted my business. And I remember thinking like, cool, I made all this profit, but I always regretted never making it into a big company. I always stuck with this two or three person. You know, I hired two of my old dorm mates. Um, it was like a cool niche company. You know, I also sold the com uh, computers on eBay. I, I had a, a bunch of leases, you know, instead of just having... Um, sales revenue. I did have some like, I guess you want to call it subscription revenue where I would allow the post-production companies to rent for me every month for a fee. But I always wondered why I didn't try to like compete with Apple or make the next Dell or make the next IBM. And I just think that because of the risk I took in the stock market, I was super risk adverse with the computer company. And that money I made was cool but I, I still think to this day, that could have been a much bigger company. And it actually could have been a really great computer company instead of just modifying Mac Pros. And before I get to the Create story, I do think that's the reason for Create is I wanted to actually take a risk and create a big company, not just focus on a company of making profit. And so you got your first foray into the Hollywood world, or at least the first yep. one that you've voiced, but the decision to start create, at least on the, on the music side of things. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? I think the original idea of collecting unclaimed revenue for artists on YouTube is extremely sophisticated and really interesting. Uh, I'm curious how you came up with that idea specifically and also why you think nobody else was doing it. Yeah. So I definitely can't take the credit for that one. Um, at this point in time, the computer money, the computer company was still making really great monthly revenue, nothing like what it made back in the day. Um, but I was really trying to figure out the next thing that I wanted to do. And my best friend from since high school that went a different path. Um, and he's now the co-founder of the company with me, Alex Williams. He was a DJ who became an artist manager who had an indie label and then worked for a distribution company would call me every single night. Uh, Cause at this distribution company, he was in charge of their YouTube relationship. And literally for hours, every evening, he would just explain to me how broken the system was, how all of these artists in this genre were essentially like not focusing on making money from distributing music and only focusing on making money from live shows. But that on the YouTube system, there were these, creators and channels that were essentially taking these works 
and making thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars per video. And the artists were making nothing and no one in the industry seemed to care about it. Right. Like the major labels, of course, focused on the hundred A-listers. And then the indie industry was more focused on physical and on different things at that, you know, seven, eight years ago. Um, and we basically came up with the idea of like, all right, let's figure out how to make a deal with YouTube. Um, that meant we had to find a, a small catalog of songs because YouTube wouldn't give you out that type of relationship unless you came to them with a catalog of songs that you could show them were being exploited um, illegally. And we did that. We went to YouTube. We got our deal with them. And it was a really simple process. We, us and our friends, you know, we also hired a, a guy named Sam Kasucci. Um, we brought on um, a guy named Jacob Pace that used to do press for uh, Alex. And we literally would scour the internet for any song that was on YouTube that didn't have a person claiming it. We would reach out to the artist and say, look, there is no way of collecting these past royalties. If you don't sign up with us today on a monthly deal, you won't make this money. And we would give them an estimate of what we thought it could make. And pretty much every single electronic artist we reached out to said yes. There was no real competition at the time. So I would like to say it was this genius idea. I actually think it was just really beautiful timing that no one was thinking about this in this way at that moment, at least on the YouTube platform. And within three or four months, it was a $250,000 a month gross business. And we were making 20% margin. The artists were making 80% margin and they were incredibly happy. And it was a combination of us reaching out to more artists. But on top of that, them referring every single friend they had because more money was being generated on YouTube than on any other platform. And to be honest, most of these songs weren't even distributed. Like, it's weird to think that Apple Music didn't yet exist. There was iTunes, but Apple Music, the streaming platform didn't. And Spotify was eight, nine years ago in its complete infancy, or I guess this was six, seven years ago, sorry. Uh, six, seven years ago was in its infancy and still wasn't a place that artists trusted to be their main source of income. So these electronic artists, in many cases, had just uploaded their songs on the SoundCloud not even thinking about money and then the world would steal it. And then we came in with, by claiming it, but very quickly we realized, all right, this can't be a manual process. Like you got to build technology because you know, now that we have a hundred artists, unless we just want to hire a hundred employees that all they do every day is claim, we're going to start having to hire developers and we're going to have to start building on technology that figures out, what is the most impactful claim for the client? So one song might have a thousand videos on YouTube that each use that music. How do we know of the thousand what will make them the most money? How do we build better mechanisms of understanding what music they go after because it will have the best rate of return? And that is where we first really built the technology and the data science. And within that first year, we actually... Um, raised our only seed round uh, of $2 million. I had already put my, my personal money in the company. Um, and it's actually the only money we've ever, ever raised in, in this company. And the reason we did that deal was because we knew that 
being a rights management company in YouTube was a great place for data science and for understanding what to get. But that music should live on every single platform that exists. You know, music isn't like media where you only want it to be on one platform, right? Netflix wants it here. Disney Plus wants it there. Music isn't like that. You want it to live every place, every, everywhere. It, isn't a, it, it makes no sense for it to be in one system. So the company that Alex used to work at was called Label Engine. And in the first year, we ended up acquiring it. And the reason we acquired that company is in our minds, it already had every distribution deal done with every DSP, so digital service provider. This was Spotify, but there's, a, there's at least 90 others that existed around the world. Many of them very small, but same thing. Why shouldn't your music live in Africa or South America um, or India, right? And by buying this company, it would allow us to take the whole catalog we had and put it in every single platform that exists. But on top of this, we felt that from a FinTech perspective, again, a very small company with four developers, but they had spent 10 years in our minds, even before streaming mattered, building the best accounting platform for music. And we had looked at other companies that would pay out every 60 days, every quarter, semi-annually. This company, when they received royalties, would pay out one day later. And we were like, oh, wow, that's crazy. And with all the splits attached to it. So we got an incredible fintech company and we got an incredible distributor. Um, and that kind of made us a much larger company in a short amount of time. So you started off as more of a services model and then blended yep. into this software model, which I think is really a great way to bootstrap a business. How did you build the initial product? I know you mentioned you hired people, but looking at your you and your co-founders' backgrounds, it doesn't seem like you're technical, at least from a computer science perspective. Um, so how did you find those initial tech folks and how did you know how to screen them? So... It was actually really tough. I think in the beginning, the first few developers we hired, um, we did not know how to manage properly and they actually did not uh, end up working out. I also think we were really impatient in the, in the first few months. We didn't understand the, light, the, the cycle of products and technology. We're just used to something very different. I actually think that by acquiring that first year label engine, that was entirely tech. And the founder of Label Engine became our CTO. That was the best move we personally made. I know most startups aren't going to have that opportunity to do that, right? They're going to have to do it the harder way of screening people and using their network and, and learning about it. And I think any founder should acclimate themselves as much as they can with how development works. I probably didn't do nearly enough of it. I mean, I think from the computer side, I did have a lot of engineering capabilities and I was actually more of a hardware engineer. And I think if you're a hardware engineer, there are certain things that do overlap with software developers that was helpful. I also think my math background kind of helped me um, as well, at least from an analytical side of being able to articulate what we need from the technology side. But without a doubt, Label Engine was the game changer. Three people that had spent, and really rich, the CTO who had spent nearly 10 years developing music tech, he was the catalyst. And that's the reason that most of our tech teams in Vancouver where he is. Um, and that was super lucky for us. Like he was able to hire really talented people and he was in, he was almost like the CEO of the tech team. That's what a CTO is meant to be. And what I lacked in software development, he was able to add in. 
Yeah, the M and A for talent is really interesting. I think that was a tactic that was heavily used like years ago from from some of the larger tech companies and even some of the growth stage ones, like these acquires. Yep. But we actually had another podcast guest um, talk about how he utilized that for his own startup. And I'm surprised it actually isn't used more by these early stage companies. I mean, it's if it's a product that's not that big from a revenue perspective, you can actually buy it pretty cheap because you can also use your equity um, to attract some of those new employees. So I, think also, I think it's also a culture where no one wants to wait a long time and everyone's impatient. And since we live in that culture, sometimes aqua hires are really smart if what they bring saves you a year. Um, you know, when you have the average life cycle of, of a startup that's successful before a liquidation event, I believe it's six to 10 years. It's somewhere, you know, you know more about this than I do, but I, I believe that's the average life cycle um, before some liquidation event, right? IPO, um, something occurs. Yeah. What, no, that I think, order, yeah. I'm sorry, no, I was just going to say, yeah, I agree. Like one year is just 15 to 20% of that time, you know, 10 to exactly. 20% of that time. Exactly. And I think a lot of times I've like wondered why Crate has been so acquisition heavy, but because time is so important and especially media and music, that's such like a legacy system. Um, I think you have to have a strong acquisition component of your company. There, of course, for SaaS companies, it, it's totally different. Like DistroKid is a beautiful company. It just got that $1.3 billion uh, valuation and it didn't need to do any acquisitions. It was a simple product with a simple focus. Uh, but for companies like what we are, it made all the difference for us. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you, you spoke about this a little bit, you know, just through the aqua hire and through some of your early hires. But uh, I think you have a really unique perspective or at least methodology on, on team building. So I had read somewhere that one, you know, your average uh, or median employee age is 30 or under, uh, I saw that one of your first employees was 16 years old and was basically behind the decision to acquire Flighthouse. Can you just share your framework for identifying talent and um, screening them? Yeah, absolutely. I don't even know what the median age is anymore, but my gut tells me that it's still under 30 years old. Um, I'm definitely not an ageist right? I'm perfectly fine hiring a 70 year old or a 60 year old, if it makes sense. But the one thing I found in the industry we're in is that the really young people, and this is actually even more so not even on the technology side. I actually think on the technology side, we found a lot of success with hiring more experienced developers because music requires Music technology, there is a lot of patience that goes into it because it's a lot of financial technology. It's a lot of royalty technology. But when it comes to the growth side of the company, hiring people that are insanely passionate about entertainment sectors has been our, the differentiating factor in our company. It's been the reason that we've been able to get into genres, whether it be music or media before any of our competitors have been. And along the way, we have created these really cool internship programs where a large amount of our interns get hired. And if you look at our landscape right now, most of the most successful leaders in our company started out as an intern. We've also not been shy. And I don't know why other people are shy of this, 
a large amount of the most successful leaders in our company were employed throughout their entire college career. So that means, let's say USC and UCLA are two feeder schools uh, locally for us. And we've had a huge amount of employees that started as interns from USC or UCLA. And we actually hired as full-time employees while they were in college and gave them leadership management positions while they are in college. And I feel other companies are kind of scared of doing that because of time constraints, because of a lot of other reasons. But we found that like Carl Legret, who runs our publishing department, is an absolute rock star. Um, and he started out as an intern. And I don't foresee us ever hiring someone above him in publishing, even though he's 24 years old and he started here as an intern. We have a girl named Nika who's still at USC to this day. And she'll be on virtual. And honestly, the pandemic has been one of the worst things ever for the whole, whole world. But for people in school, it actually has allowed them to have jobs, have internships that maybe they wouldn't otherwise. Um, and I actually think schools are gonna be more apt to figuring out creative ways with companies like us to allow people to have more of an emphasis on work. But, you know, Nika would be in a lecture virtually while she's talking to a client, then go back and forth. And we created this really cool culture, I think, of like, we don't penalize you because you're in school. We don't penalize you because of your age. All we care about is how passionate you are. And maybe there is something about someone who's in school that because they have no time for anything, they almost feel like they have to work harder. They have to prove themselves more. And they're just so ingrained in the culture in a way that I'm not. You know, Jacob Pace, who, yeah, started here at, I don't even know if it was like the end of his 15 or if he had just turned 16, same thing. When Musical.ly existed and we were, you know, talking about the platform, we uncovered this platform, this account called Flighthouse. And I don't believe that, Someone my age could have identified an account the same way he did. And by having really young, passionate, smart people that feel like they're able to take ownership of things, I think that was one of the best things for our company. And I've also believed, and if someone's insanely passionate about a product, I think Google, again, not to compare ourselves to Google at all, but Google's philosophy of allowing developers and people to really invest into passion projects is one of the reasons that their companies have become so great. I might be wrong, but I believe Google Chrome was like a passion project of a developer. Um, I think in the book, it was like Eric Schmidt didn't know about it, but Larry and Sergey were like, yeah, do it, do it, do it. And like 20% of his time, he would work on Google Chrome, even though Eric Schmidt didn't know about it. And of course, Google Chrome is one of their main products they have. I've always loved that. I'm like, all right, at Create Music Group, how do we create a culture where people, regardless of age, can feel like CEOs, where if someone believes in something, we'll take a risk in it, invest into it. And it also encourages us to not lose that startup philosophy. Like all the time I get in disagreements with people is Create Music Group still a startup? I think people... Some people look at startup as a good thing and some people look at startup as a bad thing. I look at startups as a great thing. All it means is that you're willing to take big risks um, and you're willing to invest in the new concepts. There's definitely outsiders 
that are critics of Create Music Group and feel that we do too many things. But if they understood what our culture means, I don't think they'd feel that way. Yeah, it's incredible lessons for any company. I feel like, especially even in the investing business, like having young people on your staff um, who are actually going to get into the weeds on everything uh, is because they're passionate about it and because they're part of those communities is so important. I mean, you see what's happening now with just you know crypto and all yep. these NFTs, which I'm sure you guys are somewhat involved in, given your place. Um, it's it's something that you sort of have to be either incredibly incredibly curious about if you're older or be younger and hungrier and, and passionate and sort of in these discord groups and et cetera, et cetera. A hundred percent. I mean, I still have not completely wrapped my mind around crypto, even though our company has um, invested into it and we've done lots of NFTs, but all I know is it doesn't matter what I think because if every single person under the age of 25 is obsessed with it. That's all we should care about. And I know that will mean that it will become more meaningful over time. And we're still trying to figure out how to make a big impact in that space. Right now, NFTs for us are just a way for artists to have another mechanism to sell their art. And we are absolutely in that. I mean, we were one of the, probably the first three companies to do it. But as far as innovation in the crypto space, we want to be there. And really, we're still looking for the right people they'll lead that product for us. Yep. And then given your mentality and given everything you just mentioned about your hiring process and how you're willing to take risks on younger people, you've obviously created this really unique culture internally. Uh, one thing I read is that you structure your team as tribes. Can you talk a little bit more about, more about that concept and, and what that actually means? Absolutely. Um, so my co-founder, Alex, is the uh, creator between, behind that concept. But um, him and I took it from Spotify. So they had published uh, kind of the way that day one, they had started creating their system and how essentially you have different teams, but within teams, there's pollination between the teams by creating tribes. And it just helps different teams communicate with each other by having chapters and tribes where you'll have a chapter lead, but then you'll also have a tribe lead. Um, cause I think a lot of times what happens in a lot of big companies is you have all these different divisions, but they don't talk to each other. Right. And by creating subdivisions that maybe aren't on the org chart, but have recurring meetings with goals and then having people that are tribe leaders has created a really cool system where even on the development team, it might be four, four different teams with four different products, but then on each team, there might be one person assigned to a specific tribe or chapter who gets to meet with the other divisions and kind of share what's going on and have overlap. Cause that is the one thing that still we're not perfect on, but we feel like a lot of companies suffer from. It's just too much isolation. I mean, the pandemic has been the number one. The pandemic has never pushed companies that are in their startup or growth phase harder to be able to figure out more mechanism mechanisms to collaborate. And I think that's why creating more systems internally at Create has been super beneficial for us to stop people from being isolated and not understanding what's the greater product that they're building. I still think that we're, even to this day, not doing the best job, like we could be doing even better, but creating these systems has helped tremendously. Yeah. And, and 
one thing I did notice just looking through your site, it seems like you have rapidly expanded your product offering since launch. So you started with that initial product and now I'm seeing you have product offerings such as data and analytics. You have obviously the flight house and the whole media business. Um, I even saw that you launched a credit card product for creators recently. Um, can you talk about how you decide to launch a product and how you go about developing that? Yeah. Um, so I think for a long time, we've always been obsessed with like the concept of universes, obviously, you know, in the entertainment industry, Disney looks at universes as well, but they look at it very differently, right? Like they're buying fandoms, they're buying, you know, Marvel universes, Star Wars universes. But for us in music and entertainment, I look at it as a different universe. Maybe you want to call it an audience universe, right? Um, and I just feel that in the music and entertainment industry to really move the needle, it can't just be one product offering. It, it, it needs to be a constant evolution of what you're giving the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur is not me. The entrepreneur is the artist or the creator that we represent. So those artists or creators that we represent have an ever expanding need to make more. They have an ever expanding need for there to be more opportunities for the content that they create and for better data and analytics into what they do. And for our team, because there's different layers of the business to be able to assist them with better data analytics and what they should do and how we do market those assets and where we do put them. And every step along the way, we've been constantly evolving that. And to be honest, that product will never ever be done. It never will be finished. It's always gonna continue, but that's only because the economy for entrepreneurs is changed so dramatically. And as these markets, especially internationally evolve, there's going to be more need for tools. So at first for artists, let's make sure you get paid on YouTube. It's the main place you're missing money. Some of these artists that were making zero, we took to 3,000, 5,000, $10,000 a month, which completely changed their lives and also made it so that they could focus on being an entrepreneur on being an artist, right? Like, that's enough money to not have to work another job, which isn't, a, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, right? Artists who work for Uber or Lyft, like that's fucking great. Sorry for my words, but still, if we can give them a few extra hours a day, I think that's super important. And then after that, we had to really focus on data, data and analytics because before us, no artist that existed knew how much money they were making per day. It was not an offering. And when you're trying to be an entrepreneur and you have no idea what you're making that day, you don't know what you're making that month off. You don't know what you're making that quarter. If you're a traditional artist, you're totally just relying on third parties. It's really hard for you to map out what you should do. Imagine starting a startup and someone's investing into you, right? A, a VC invests into you with the rule that you cannot see how much you make. I don't know how you would build that company. It makes no sense. Why are we treating artists and creators any differently? Now, platforms like YouTube, if you have a YouTube channel, they do show you your daily earnings. So I want to make that apparent. 
But when you are distributing your assets cross platform, we were the only ones and the first ones to actually show you that. And then they actually start building out prediction graphs of what would occur, what it would make, and then to actually create lending facilities, you know, and, and music it's called advances based on what we thought would occur and to help you grow and to also give you recommendations of where you should place that money to grow your catalog, to grow your assets, even viral assets we represent, right? We're not just music. We make probably 75% of our revenue for music, but at least 25% of our, our, our revenue does come from media. Um, and some of this media is also made by music, which I think is great, right? If you're an artist, you're an entrepreneur, you don't need to just focus on creating songs. There's a whole world of Twitch and YouTube and other platforms that you can make media on and make a bunch of money from. Um, so that was just super, super important for us. And then the credit card product just is a natural fit, right? Like I don't mind that there's lots of other companies creating credit cards, but at the end of the day, since where are the company collecting the money from the digital service providers, we just thought that it's super important to give someone instant access to that money when needed. It is still on beta. Most of our clients still have to wait to the day after the DSPs pay us to get paid. But in the next year, that will become more prevalent to the majority of our artists and creators. And that's just the next step in building this ecosystem for creators. Um, and we might get into this later, but the other thing that we've invested into that music companies have not is most music companies are completely focused on the artist audience, right? Like they don't, own an audience like a Disney, Netflix, or those, you know, those companies or platforms do. They, I use the word exploit. I don't mean it badly, but they exploit the artist audience. They market the artist, artist audience. I feel we're one of the only music companies that are really deeply investing and owning and operating brands that can also help accelerate the music that we represent. So part of our investment strategy has been to really own meaningful brands cross-platform that both represent media and music that have their own audiences that we can also put our artists' IP inside of and grow their IP as well. And so when you think about the vision for the business overall, I mean, is, is that the end state or what is the, you know, your, your long-term vision for the company? It's so interesting. Everyone asks me this question and I have two answers for it. You know, the first answer is, and you probably, you know, you may totally disagree with me, but I do think that vision is great for everyone involved in the company. And we do have many visions that we're trying to accomplish, but sometimes I think that not having, not having one vision and working to more of a larger problem. Again, it's this economy of entrepreneurs that are going to need more products to be able to grow. I don't know if it's wrong to not have a super solid vision because I would argue that create music group doesn't have a super solid vision, but at the same time, the one vision that we have been solving that will continue to, will continue to solve is that I believe we are building the world's largest audience company. And when you look at companies like Disney, they did it in a very different way. 
And I'll also argue their scalability will always be hindered because they have to make all their IP internally versus companies like Create will have millions of people that are making IP that they put within our shared universe. But the one thing Disney has that we don't is they have influence, right? And we're building influence, but I look at Disney as doing it the complete opposite way and doing it brilliantly. They started out with building influence and with influence, they built audience. With Create Music Group, we have been building audience at a massive scale that benefits our entire universe of creators and artists. And what we need to do for them and for us, but this is where your brain has to go from, like, I think we could be the largest audience company in the world within two years. Truly believe that. But being the most influential media company, that needs to be a 10-year plan. And that, if there's a vision, it is to be to go from being an audience company to really, really have real influence. I mean, this is why influencers are called influencers, of course, because they do have influence more so than I think a lot of brands do. But if we can increase their influence and then increase our influence, that's how we'll win. And that's the long-term play. But anyone that thinks they can build influence in a year or two, I think they're just wrong. And you have to have a very long roadmap for that. And in order to increase your influence over time and, and continue to also build those audiences over time. Does that just mean the continued acquisitions of things like flight house and continue signing of, of new artists or how does, how do you envision that playing out? Well, it's, it's an entire ecosystem, right? Without the financial product in the center of it, where the people who make this content being able to grow their content, get paid quickly, analyze their content, why are they going to want to put their content within our universe, right? Like that's why a few years ago, the classic MCN model completely died. You had Maker Studio and all these companies that are getting 600 million to a billion dollar valuations. But really they were just exploiting the content of creators and not actually growing the content of creators, not actually creating financial products for them to become real entrepreneurs and become millionaires billionaires, multimillionaires themselves. And that's what we need to do. And some of it will be acquisitions. Some of it will be aqua hires and some of it will be just really investing in the products we already have. Um, I mean, this is not yet released yet, but you know, we're already the largest brand on TikTok, but soon we'll release that. We're also the large owned and operated network on Instagram. Um, in addition to our music network, that's on every platform. And I just feel that, you know, we're platform agnostic. We're not more TikTok or Instagram, but by building out these audiences and these own and operated networks, I do feel how that's, we're going to win. We're going to win and differentiate ourselves. Um, and they continue to innovate on new platforms. Like we don't have a big influence on Twitch yet, or even an audience on Twitch, but we know we should be there. And anyone in the media industry should attempt to be there as well. That's how we see us winning. It's really interesting and, and a very bold vision. And the fact that you've been able to create what you have with just $2 million of outside capital is incredibly impressive. Thank so you. Thank you. I, I appreciate you sharing the story. And I think there's a lot of really interesting lessons in here for bootstrap founders and, and really founders of all types in terms of just pure execution and creativity. Thank you so much.